Right, afternoon, everybody. Delighted to see so many people here at such <coughs> short notice. I think it's pretty impressive how the LSE can mobilise uh, when there's a topic that people are interested in, and I think this is testament. My name is Dr Coast. I'm an academic in the Social Policy Department, and this event uh, is being co-hosted by the new um, LSE Global Health Initiative and the LSE African Initiative, um, two topics very close to my heart. Um, some basic housekeeping. I know the natural thing to do is to sit right at the very end of the rows, but there will be people coming in trying to get in and there won't be seats in the middle. So it's really helpful for your speaker if you can scooch into the middle rather than all lurking at the ends of rows because then other people can come in as they're trying to make that mad dash here from the sixth floor of Clement House. Okay, so thank you for that housekeeping. Just to let you know that the event is being recorded and podcasted, so please do uh, bear that in, in mind. I have to do the housekeeping before I get to the main event. I'm so sorry that I have to do the housekeeping first. And the final bit of housekeeping is that we are being live tweeted, and if you want to join in with some live tweeting, it's hashtag LSE Ebola. I can probably write that on a board. <laughs> I did raise an eyebrow when Samaria told me we're going to go with hashtag LSE Ebola, but, you know. Okay, people who know more about this stuff than me, that's the hashtag. Okay, but most importantly... I'm absolutely delighted uh, to introduce uh, Dr. Benjamin Black, who's going to talk today about his experiences of working uh, in Sierra Leone for Médecins Sans Frontières, and for the non-Francophones amongst you, that's Doctors Without Borders. Um, He has a brilliant blog, I don't know if you're going to mention it, it's got one of the best blog titles I think I've ever seen, which is called May the Forceps Be With You, which I think for an OBGYN is an excellent name for a blog. So without further ado... Over to Benjamin, who's going to talk, and then there will be an opportunity uh, for questions afterwards. So, welcome and thank you. Thanks. Can, can you all hear me okay? Yes? Okay, so yes, my name's Benjamin, and I am a doctor, so I'm obstetrics and gynaecology registrar in London normally, but I'm currently working for Medicine Sans Frontières. Um, I'm not an expert in Ebola, but by virtue of the last three months, I've become experienced in Ebola. Um, and although what I'm talking about is related to my work with MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, it's based mostly on my views, my experience. I'm not here as a spokesperson for the organisation itself. Okay? Um, so, first of all, why was I in Sierra Leone? I didn't go to Sierra Leone for the Ebola epidemic. I went to Sierra Leone just over a month after the first case of Ebola was confirmed there. But the reason I went was to work in the tunnel um, health programme. So, taking Ebola out of the uh, equation for a moment, Sierra Leone already had a very fragile health structure. And it, according to the WHO, uh, their most recent report in 2014 found that they had the highest maternal mortality rate globally, um, which equated to a 1,100 per 100,000 maternal mortality ratio. Um, I always find maternal mortality ratio is a bit hard um, to to grasp, so so I usually look at the, um, the lifetime risk. And that, that means, so, if you're a woman of reproductive age in Sierra Leone, your chance of dying during childbirth is 1 in 21. And that's astonishingly high. Um, so, MSF ran an obstetric referral centre where we received complicated cases 
from approximately one third of the country um, to, to deal with them either surgically or medically. Um, now, before I start moving on to the slides, I'm going to give you a scenario so you can get an idea of what it was like to be me. So, I, it's two o'clock in the morning, you are now all doctors, and you're the only doctor inside the hospital. And um, you have an ambulance turn up, as they often do, and in the back of your ambulance is a woman who is full-term pregnancy, unconscious, having a seizure. It's not so uncommon in Sierra Leone to have a woman full-term pregnancy in the back of an ambulance having a seizure. There is a condition called eclampsia. You get it here as well, related to high blood pressure, which you get seizures. And we see it very commonly in Sierra Leone. It was pretty much a daily occurrence, usually a couple a day. So you see this woman, she's there. But she's also bleeding from the nose and the mouth. And this is bearing in mind there is an existing Ebola epidemic going on around you. Well, she could be bleeding because she fell down, which the family say happened earlier in the day when she had the first seizure. She could be bleeding because she's bitten her tongue. Um, or she could be bleeding because of a coagulation uh, complex that happens during eclampsia. So there's lots of good medical obstetric-related reasons that she could be bleeding. She could be bleeding because she's got a highly infectious and very dangerous viral hemorrhagic fever. You need to make a judgment call. If you decide that this woman has eclampsia, then you can save her life. You can take her inside your hospital, where there's going to be other nurses, there's going to be a theatre. You can start treatment, which will control her blood pressure, stop the seizures, and you can prepare her for delivery of the baby. If you think she's got Ebola, then the last thing that you want to do is to take her inside your hospital, where you will then expose all of your nurses all of your patients and newborns, your operating theatre and all its equipment, to highly infectious body fluids. And blood and amniotic fluid especially get very high viral loads. So you need to make that decision. You've not got a test that's going to give you an answer straight away. You've got a test which will give you an answer in about 24 hours because you've got to send it to a lab down some pretty dodgy roads and then wait for them to call you when they've run it the following day. In 24 hours, without treatment, she's probably going to die. She's almost certainly going to die. Okay. So, this is where I was working, Gondomer Referral Centre. As I already said, we only took patients with pregnancy complications. So if a woman comes in normal pregnancy, she would be sent to a health centre nearby that we gave support, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't do normal deliveries there. The types of cases that we saw were very complex cases, usually uh, things that you wouldn't often see in the UK, women who had been left in labour for days and days and days, maybe been to a local hospital and not had access to treatment and then sent to us. So we'd be seeing things like ruptured uteruses, women having um, massive hemorrhages, coming with very low blood counts to start with, infectious tropical diseases, malaria, typhoid... Um, <clears throat> the reason why that's important to understand is every woman that turned up to us was multiply complicated. Most of them had fevers, they were always in pain, most of them were bleeding, often had headaches, diarrhoea. A lot of women turned up, the baby already dead. This is, this is obstetrics in Sierra Leone at the moment. It's not an easy job. But all of these are also signs and symptoms that come with Ebola. So this is our delivery room. As you can see, it's not particularly fancy, um, but it does the job. 
There's three beds just like this, all next to each other in a room, and they're separated by a curtain. I want you to look at that and think of that from an infection control point of view, when you've got nurses that go from patient to patient, where you can't be sure whether or not someone's carrying a very dangerous infectious disease, and how do you manage that? As it goes, inside Sierra Leone at the moment, there is a uh, government policy for free healthcare for pregnant women. And near to us, there are two government hospitals that had very good facilities. One in Kenema, which you may have heard of, is now quite infamous as a hospital. It's where the nurse who was flown over here got infected, and it's also where many, many uh, national uh, Sierra Leone nurses got infected and, and sadly died. Um, but Kenema Hospital is a big government hospital. They have a new maternity unit, and so does Bow Government Hospital. Very nice rooms, and the staff that worked here always said, Doctor, the hospital's in, in Bowen and Kenema are much nicer than this one. So why do all the patients come to us? Because they've got a nice facility, but the doctors often weren't there, the equipment was often missing, the electricity wasn't working. If you got there, you needed a caesarean section, the gloves might be being sold on the market. You have to send your sister to go and buy the gloves in the market so the surgeon can do the operation. So even though you've got those facilities, women would come to us. Um, this, this created a problem for us um, with the epidemic because it meant that we were getting women who were travelling from areas where the epidemic was worse than where we worked specifically. So when we were factoring in, does this woman who is bleeding and has a fever, does she have bleeding and fever because it's a pregnancy complication or because it's Ebola? We also needed to think about where is she coming from and what's happening in that area. This is the general ward. Again, I'm just showing you so you can get an idea again of infection control of how do you manage to continue a service, and it's a vital service, as I said, it's the only obstetric referral centre. It's meant to be for a couple of districts, but in reality we're taking for about one-third of the country. But bearing in mind that you've now got Ebola, which can affect your patients, but importantly also your staff, and, and national healthcare staff in Sierra Leone are a very, very, very important resource. You do not want to infect them with Ebola. You, the country cannot afford to lose them. So, why are we there? I've told you this. The situation is very grave from the outset. This woman was in her fifth pregnancy. All four of the previous pregnancies ended in stillbirths. She came to us with very severe preeclampsia, which is a condition related to what I was describing before. She had astonishingly high blood pressures. She needed to be delivered urgently. And I truly believe that had MSF not been present with paediatric and obstetric services, both her and the baby would have died. Right now, in Sierra Leone, a woman like her almost certainly would die. Why? Because the health infrastructure, as a result of Ebola, has completely fallen apart. The hospitals are empty, healthcare workers are afraid to be there, patients are afraid to be there, and there is a very... Well, we, we don't know the exact numbers, but the likelihood is that the secondary mortality, so indirect mortality from Ebola, is much higher than that that you're hearing about in the news from Ebola itself. So let's go back to the wider, wider context of why I'm here. Let's talk about Ebola a little bit. This is the outside of the maternity unit. And as you can see, there's a table there. And I don't know if you can read, but on that table it says triage. And there's two bottles, and they're full of chlorine water. And so we, as the epidemic uh, became a reality for us, when I arrived, there hadn't been any Ebola patients inside the area that I was working. We hadn't even had any suspect patients yet. But we were making preparations. And one of those preparations was to triage patients before they can come inside the hospital to um, ask them a series of questions to try and differentiate 
is this likely to be Ebola or is this likely not to be Ebola? And then we would spray them with chlorine, spray their hands with chlorine, and any stuff going in and out, always spray their hands with chlorine. This is the top of the table, and this is the triage sheet. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but essentially it's talking about these very vague symptoms of Ebola that I was telling you about. So, you know, the thing for me, honestly, the biggest shock for me when I started seeing patients with Ebola was that it wasn't written on their forehead, which might sound really stupid, but I really believed I'd heard all these stories about Ebola that I would just know an Ebola patient when I saw one. They're going to look really sick, a little bit zombified, bleeding from everywhere, and it's just not the case. They look like any other patient. And they present, like any other patient, a bit of a fever, a bit of a headache, a bit fluy. Sometimes uh, they might have some diarrhoea. But it's very unlikely they're going to turn up with the dramatic symptoms that you read about in the news. And so the way that we would triage our patients would be to go through the vague symptoms, which is the big box there, um, and then combine that with, with any of these other groups, uh, which included signs of bleeding that can be explained, which includes spontaneous miscarriage, having a fever, or at this time, and this has now changed as the situation in the country has developed, where do you come from? Now every single district in Sierra Leone has Ebola. But at the time that this triage sheet was written, it was only present in certain areas. So you could ask them, what village do you come from? Has anyone in your house been sick in the last month? Did you go to a funeral? Did you wash a body? Um, if they meet the case definition, they become a suspect Ebola case or suspect Ebola patient and you then have to treat them as, as if they had Ebola because once suspected, they have Ebola till proven otherwise and that means putting on all that gear that you see the photos of, the yellow suits the, the hats, the goggles taking them to an isolation area not doing any invasive procedures because of the risks, taking the blood test or the swab and waiting for a result to decide what do you do next. The problem for us, as I mentioned, is that in obstetrics, because of the type of women that presented, there was a massive overlap. There was a huge grey zone. So for lots and lots of women that turned up, we were being asked, asking of ourselves for the safety of our patients, the safety of our colleagues, do we bring this woman inside the unit or not? Because either way, the decision that you make can be resulting in condemning other people to death. You could be sending that woman to isolation, she dies and she's negative of Ebola, and you know that you could have taken her into your unit and saved her life. You could bring her into your hospital thinking that she doesn't have Ebola, do a caesarean section, be very proud of yourself, and then find that actually she has Ebola and you've just exposed all of your healthcare workers. The issues with this way of uh, working was that it's not 100%. Um, and what we had was that there's a lot of um, wider cultural issues and some of the questions that we're asking. As people found out, uh, well, for the first thing, specifically for us, the cultural issue is that we asked about miscarriage. So a spontaneous miscarriage with a fever equals case definition. But a lot of uh, women in Sierra Leone, as in many countries around the world, have unwanted pregnancies and need to seek um, termination of pregnancy. And that might be done through uh, traditional um, birth attendants, it might be done through someone in the village, it might be through a community health worker. But they might be quite resistant to tell that to us and be nervous about how we're going to take that information. And so if someone's had a termination of pregnancy, that's very different to someone having a spontaneous miscarriage from trying to differentiate if this is Ebola or not. But if they're not going to tell you, if they're nervous to tell you, 
then it makes it very difficult for us to know where are we with this patient, what's happening here. Um, as word got out that we were triaging and that there were certain questions that if you answered in a certain way, you might not get treatment straight away, uh, patients started changing what they would say. <coughs> so they wouldn't share information with us about um, if, if they had come from a certain area that was known to have a higher epidemic. Um, there was also problems that if we suspected Ebola, they um, didn't believe that it existed. And so then we came to a conflict because we're saying we need to test you for something. They're saying, no, you don't, because that doesn't exist. It's, uh, it's something that's been invented by the West or it's witchcraft. Um, but then we're also saying, but we're not going to bring you inside. So, so it caused a lot of complications for us um, in trying to navigate that territory. Um, and as I said already, the management strategies between a patient with Ebola and an obstetric emergency are completely different. Obstetric emergencies need fast intervention, usually surgical, almost always with lots of body fluids flying around. There's lots of sharp tools and instruments being used. Um, it's virtually a 100% transmission rate of Ebola if you get what's called a needle stick injury. Um, so, so you, you know, you, and needle stick injuries happen a lot in obstetrics. I can say from personal experience, I get more needle stick injuries than my colleagues in other specialties because we work in parts of the body where you can't see very well. We work where there's lots of blood, we work with lots of stress, and we work where we need to do things quickly. This is just to show you uh, what would happen. So we used to call it Code 99. This is out of date now. Everyone knows what Ebola is. But at the time, we were trying not to freak patients out. So if we thought someone had Ebola, we would uh, start up Code 99, which would then um, go down this cascade of who do you call? Because there's lots of people that need to be involved. You need water sanitation experts. You need coordination. You need your isolation team. Uh, you need people who are qualified to take the blood and package it in a safe way and organise the transport to a lab. Um, and you want to get that done as quickly as possible. And then if you can see at the bottom underneath that first sheet, it says, what do you do if you suspect Ebola? Number one is you stay calm. <laughs> Much easier said than done. <laughs> OK. So my first shift, and this is what I was wearing. As I said, there had been no suspected or confirmed Ebola cases in the area that I was working <coughs> until I came to work. And on my first shift, we had the first two suspected cases of Ebola. And both of them came to maternity. Um, so what were those two cases? What happened was we had a woman who um, arrived in an extreme state. She had been brought in by ambulance. She was having a late miscarriage, bleeding very heavily. She was almost unconscious, talking incoherently, and she had a blood count of four, which is pretty low by anyone's standards. Um, so she got brought in. We started resuscitating her gave her antibiotics, got blood for her, uh, and started thinking about what, what are we going to do. Um, whilst that was going on, another woman turned up. And she looked really, really sick. Yeah, I, I don't know how to explain it, but you know, some people, they just look really sick. And so she was sitting outside. Um, she had all her hair shaved off because she had a terrible headache and lots of ringing in her ears. And um, she, too, was bleeding, having a miscarriage, she had a fever, um, and interestingly, when we started asking more questions, it turned out that uh, a relative of hers had died about a week or two before, and she had been involved in the preparation of the body for the funeral. So she met our case definition very clearly. Spontaneous miscarriage, fever, and attendance at a funeral. And then we asked her where she came from, and she came from the same village as the first woman. 
By this point, the first woman was more conscious, and actually she spoke very good English. She was an English teacher. And we went and spoke to her and asked her about if she'd been dealing with any uh, dead bodies. And I'll never forget her answer, because her answer was, there's so many people dying from fever in my village, I've stopped counting. And um, she had, one of her colleagues had died, and she had been involved in, in, in preparing the body. So I had one outside, but even more worrying was I had one inside, who we'd already started doing procedures on, inside the um, maternity unit. And so me and my colleague here got dressed up, opened up the isolation centre, and took them both to be isolated to get the tests done to find out whether or not they actually had Ebola. In the 24 hours it took for us to get the result, one died, but both of them were negative. Um, as for the woman who came in having a seizure at 2 o'clock in the morning, which, by the way, I really thought was eclampsia, because there was very good reasons why she could be bleeding from her nose and mouth. In the end, we decided to isolate her. She died three hours after we isolated her, and then we sent the blood test off. And I can tell you, for those 24 hours, I've never wanted someone to have Ebola more. And she was our first confirmed case of Ebola in the unit. Not a very cheery uh, lecture, I'm afraid. Um, so, yeah. So, that was the situation we were in. And the situation worsened. You know, these were that, so that night's the first night. And as you know from the news, the epidemic is exponential. It's, you know, going up and up and up. We've yet to see the peak. Um, and I don't know if you've seen the map of Sierra Leone, but where we were sort of in the middle of the country and the epidemic started in the east, but there'd been a couple of cases in Freetown, which was more towards the rest. And so you could really see how the epidemic was sweeping in towards us. So the reason I wanted to show you this is that this OT is operating theatre. So this is where the operations happen. This is where we have the most exposure to body fluids and the, really the most difficult surgeries I've ever seen or ever had to do. People with ruptured uteruses, torn bladders, um, needing hysterectomies... And on the same wall, you've got a sign saying, Ebola, beware, Ebola. It's carried in all body fluids. It's very high in amniotic fluid. If you think someone's got Ebola, do not take them into an operating theatre and start doing laparotomies. Laparotomy is open surgery. Um, so, it's, you know, you're in, a, you're in this situation which is really a contradiction in terms. Um, and so we tried to find ways around it. We've tried to do the surgery in protective equipment. And it works for a while, but it's very difficult. The protective equipment makes you incredibly hot. Um, and if you've got a complex surgery where you're already stressed, you're in a hot environment anyway, and it's taking maybe an hour, hour and a half to do, maybe even two hours, it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, you are, I can't describe how much sweat um, I had when I was operating. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, but more importantly is that your goggles start to mist up. So then you can't see. And then you've got to make a decision. Do I carry on with this operation? I mean, you have, you have a choice. You're the only doctor. This woman's in front of you. She's bleeding. You've got to do the surgery. Do I carry on not being able to see very well and risk sticking a needle in my finger? Or do I take off the goggles so that I can see and get the operation done but risk splashing blood into my eye? There's no correct answer. I mean, I can tell you I, I changed my mind from surgery to surgery. Um, but it was, a, it was a very serious consideration because you need to decide where do you draw the line? At what point do you decide that what you're trying to do for the good of your patients 
start to become dangerous for yourself or dangerous for your colleagues. It's a bit like running into the house on fire, um, if, if you know what I mean. So, so that was part of it. Um, and, 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 yeah, so this is... This is a, so this is us trying on the suits. This is teaching the national staff how to dress. But you've seen the wards. You've seen the delivery rooms. You understand that we were working in, ultimately in a grey zone with no correct answer. Um, that we were making really, in my view, impossible ethical decisions that, that I was and my colleagues were taking the responsibility for deciding if someone lives or dies um, or our staff get infected or not infected. Um, and there's a point at which you need to say... Maybe we're not. Maybe we're not up to this right now. Maybe this epidemic is actually the issue, and maternity services—the best way to get on top of them—is to get on top of the epidemic. I'm not telling you that that's the right answer. I'm telling you this is how I saw it at that time. Um, I'd be interested to hear if you have a different view. Very interested. Um, but this is this is this is what we had. The problem is, if someone gets infected, a national staff, so if your nurse gets infected, or if international staff get infected, so I got infected, the fallout from that is much bigger than just one person getting infected. The fallout is, it becomes an issue for the, the media, the way it's reported, it becomes an international issue. If you think about how much attention the UK media has given to the nurse who got infected and flown over here compared to how much attention at the same time was being given to the thousands of people within Western Africa who, who were dying from this epidemic and, and talking about what sort of response was needed. So, um, so, so it goes beyond just protecting ourselves. It's also thinking about the wider context of how, how this epidemic is going to be responded to and, and what the uh, impact will be if, if we all start getting infected. As the epidemic worsened, I started getting daily text messages like this, Ebola SMS, uh, and, and, and essentially I, I started moving much more towards um, working in Ebola directly. So I explained one side of the coin, which is how we try to manage pregnant women inside the Ebola epidemic. But the other side of the coin was, how do we manage the pregnant women who have Ebola inside the treatment centres? And that became um, more of a focus for me as the epidemic worsened because we started to get more pregnant women who were inside the treatment centres and there wasn't anyone who knew what to do with them. Firstly, because there wasn't any guidelines, protocols. This epidemic is new territory. There's never been an Ebola epidemic of this size that's affected health services in such a huge way that they've needed to really think about how you manage pregnant women. Um, and also because the people working didn't know how to do deliveries. They didn't know how to do it safely for themselves or for their patients. And so I started yo-yoing between this project and Kailahoon, which was the epicentre of the epidemic, um, which is on the eastern border with Guinea. So this is Calhoun Treatment Centre. It was the first uh, MSF treatment centre in Sierra Leone. We now have two. Um, and it's been expanded twice. So actually this photo, I think, is after the first expansion. It's been expanded again. So there's 96 beds inside the Ebola Management Centre. That's what we call it. And uh, at the moment we have trained between seven and 800 Sierra Leonean national staff who work predominantly in spreading uh, health promotion material to the wider community, because this is a huge part of, uh, you know, we all talk about the isolation, but actually really you need to make sure that your community know what Ebola is and how to avoid getting affected, how to, uh, that, that washing your hands will get rid of Ebola uh, if it's on your skin, it's a very weak virus. So there's a lot of information that needs to be disseminated. 
As of the 8th of October, which is the most recent statistics I could get, we've had 721 admissions in this unit. Of those, 494 were found to be confirmed with Ebola, and 197 of them were discharged uh, as recovered. So that gives a fatality rate of around 60%. And now we've opened another Ebola management centre in Bow, um, which is where my original project was. And that's, at the moment, got 35 beds, but has the capacity to increase. So, as just very briefly, just because it might be interesting to you, explain how the isolation unit works. So, this is completely out of date, because now the centre has been expanded twice. Um, but what you have is uh, this area, which is suspected area, and then ignore the P's, because this is already out whilst we were expanding, because we had too many patients. But this would have been probable. Now this is all confirmed. And this is fences, and there's a fence here as well. And the way that it works is that it's a one-way system. And so, the staff and the patients only move one way, from the lowest risk area to the highest risk area. So you come in sort of down here somewhere where you have the triage, exactly the same triage system as what we were using in the maternity unit. If you think someone is a suspect, you put them into the suspect area. They get tested. If they're negative, then they're discharged. If they're positive, they move across this. So there's two fences, a little no man's land in between, into the confirmed area. Anything that goes inside the high risk area does not come out for surviving patients and stuff. So all their clothes, <laughs> all their clothes get burnt. All um, belongings, if I take anything in there, I don't bring it back out, uh, because, obviously because of the risk of contamination. Um, and the way that I would go through the unit, if I was going in, I'd always start from low risk, and then I'd come back out through the conformity <coughs> area, through the decontamination process. Um, so, so this is what it's like to, to go in. So you go, first of all, you get dressed. So what, what does the material involve? So you have your scrubs, you have the big yellow um, overcoat, which is waterproof. Then you have a hood with just an area for the eyes, which you put goggles over, two face masks, your Wellingtons, two pairs of gloves, and then an apron that goes over that. Now imagine that at midday in Western Africa. It's very, very hot. And... Um, you know, we say that you, can't, you shouldn't stay in that for more than 45 minutes to an hour. I think that the only time I ever managed that was when I used to go. I used to go in at 5.30 in the morning, 6 in the morning, purposefully because the sun wasn't up yet. So I'd go then to do blood tests and things. But if I went during the daytime, if I managed 30 minutes, I'd be pretty proud of myself. Um, and then you go in. So this is doing a ward round. So you have your patients around you. This yellow fence is one side of the no-man's land. The other, you've got a couple of metres and then another fence here. And then you've got the other part of the treatment area, which is where you do all your notes and everything. And you can see I've got a piece of paper and a pen in my hand. So that's how I can make notes. What am I making notes on? What patients am I concerned about? What have I done to patients in there? Have I given them any drugs? Have I put in an IV line? And also which patients have died? Um, I would then um, come over to the fence and shout all that information across because none of that information is going to come out with me. That paper and pen will never, ever come back out of the high-risk zone. So I shout it across to my friend, and then I go and I get decontaminated. And this is the high, thought to be the highest-risk time for the healthcare workers um, whilst working in the, in the high-risk area. And so you can see I've got my um, hygienist, and she's spraying chlorine uh, that's not me, but she's bringing chlorine on, onto this person. Um, and it's, it takes about 10 minutes to do it properly. And I can tell you it is the most annoying, frustrating time ever. Because you're boiling hot, your head is banging, you're, you're sort of spinning, and all you want to do is rip this stuff off. 
and you've got they're really strict the hygienists and if you try to go quick they will tell you off but actually they are the ones who are saving all our lives so as much as you're really annoyed at them you always have to say thank you afterwards um, okay so so that's the medical round but as i said that's only one part of it that's the bit that you will you, it's maybe the slightly glamorous side of, of what you see in the news as these yellow suits the other side is that there's a huge amount of psychological work going on we have psychologists who are speaking to the patients because it, it's a very traumatic time you're you're inside this area with this disease where you know you're facing a possible death around you are children and adults dying and you see it every day you see people every day being carried out in body bags um you need psychological support for those people and if they survive they get psychological support before they go home we give psychological support to the families to the communities the health promotion activities i told you about outreach programs where we go into the communities to find out if people in those villages are dying because maybe they don't know that they need to be coming or they don't know that the dead body needs to be taken by the ministry of health so so it, we focus on this bit of it but actually this is just one part of it um that there's a much wider campaign that's going on to try and get on top of the epidemic and then there's pregnancy inside the treatment centers how do we deal with that um well it's very different the approach uh that i took was that you need to protect your healthcare workers first the mortality for the pregnant women is exceedingly high um i can't give you an exact number but it's above 80% the mortality for the babies is 100% um so far we have one case at the moment that may be the first uh surviving baby but we're a few months away so i can't really say what the outcome will be uh but from a perinatal mortality point of view nearly all of the babies who are still born except for we had two live births but they both died within 24 to 48 hours so in some ways that makes my job a bit easier because i don't need to think too hard about how do i save this baby what i need to think about is how do i look after this mother how do i make sure that she's psychologically well and and how do i help her if she actually goes into labor inside the treatment center um and then you have would you believe it a whole new list of ethical dilemmas because nobody knows what to do because there's no data on it and the evidence is based on other diseases and so there's a similar disease called Lassa fever which has some data which says you should empty the uterus essentially that means induce the uh, pregnancy to be delivered and this might help increase uh, the survival of the mother <coughs> the problem with the birth is it is a viral hemorrhagic fever where you get bleeding And so then you've got to ask yourself or I would ask myself do I want to induce this woman whilst she's got Ebola she looks quite well at the moment if I make her give birth while she's still sick am I then going to cause her to bleed to death and and I don't have the answer I can tell you what we decided but I don't have the answer um we would usually wait until they're better my my argument was let let them get better if they get if they survive let them recover and then induce them the other complication with pregnancy was this If the woman survives pregnancy, survives pregnancy. If she survives Ebola and the blood test is negative, but she's still pregnant, the pregnancy still has Ebola. So she's negative, she survived, but if I go and I do an amniocentesis, which is where you take a bit of amniotic fluid and run it through the lab, that will show a very high viral load. So even though she's negative, we cannot let her deliver outside of the treatment center because all of that fluid, the placenta and the baby still has Ebola. The other thing is that if she survives and she's lactating, she's breastfeeding, the breast milk continues to hold the virus. The same like men, men who survive, the semen has the virus for about 3 months, they think. Everything's a little bit, we think, because there's not a huge amount of evidence. 
Um, so we had lots to think about and lots to talk about in, in the management of that. Now, I know I've told you lots of depressing things. There was good times as well. This is someone being discharged. He's very happy. He's very proud of himself. He's going home, back to his village. Um, and when we discharged them, it was a great time. Everyone comes around, starts clapping, dancing, singing. Um, they get given what's called a solidarity package. They need to get new everything, new clothes, food to go home with, supplementations to get them strong again. Sometimes their home has been decontaminated, so you don't know what belongings will be left there. And for men, they have to get a three months' supply of condoms, which was always a source of argument because they always wanted more than we were willing to give. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then just, I know that I wanted to leave time for questions, so just very briefly, just the challenges that we had. Well, the challenge for me personally is that I'm living inside an epidemic. You're not just working with patients with Ebola. You're living with the community where Ebola exists as well. So you're never away from that. That is always in my mind. When I'm walking down a village, and as often happens, a group of children will come running over to you and and start shouting, uh, you know, hi, hi, you know, and, and they want to come around you. It's very nice, but I'm thinking, what's going on inside there? house over there? What, how is their family? Do I know that these people that are coming to me aren't a risk of infection? And that's quite a difficult way to live, and it's quite difficult not to offend people as well. I mean, we, we worked as a no-touch policy, so I wouldn't touch anybody, even my colleagues outside of work, who don't touch ever. It's just really weird when you come back home, by the way. It's very weird to go back to touching people. Um, but there is a risk, you know, personal risk. You are living in the epidemic, and psychologically it, do, it does have an issue. And from a I mean, I speak a lot about obstetrics, but what I want to say is, I speak about obstetrics because that's my experience. But you can apply that, maybe not all of it, the surgery is a bit specific, but you can apply that to general health, okay? Pediatrics, children are now dying from malaria, diarrheal diseases, simple, simple curable conditions because they present similar to Ebola and because they can't get the care they need because healthcare workers, understandably, are frightened. And also because... The families are frightened to go to the health centres because you know that if you don't have Ebola, if you go to a health centre, there's a good chance you might just get it there. Um, so, so the, you know, as I said, the, the secondary mortality is very high. And I certainly felt with obstetrics, um, and I probably should have clarified this at the beginning, when I talk about obstetrics, I mean complicated pregnancies, not just a healthy pregnancy having a normal delivery. The ones with complications, so, so what I was doing, uh, we were in pretty much a no-win situation. Whatever we did, we were going to get it wrong. Um, so, really, what happens next? Eventually, this epidemic will be over, I believe, anyway. I don't think it's going to become endemic, but we'll see. Um, but after that, you are going to have certainly two countries, Liberia and Sierra Leone, with very, very, very damaged health structures. As I said, they're weak to start with. They're now if not collapsed on the verge. Um, we don't know what's going to happen as far as other social structures go, bearing in mind these are countries which are 10 years out from civil war. Um, certainly, I think that if this was happening in this country, and we had been dealing with this for the last six months, I'm not sure that we would all be as calm as they are. I think you have to have a lot of respect for the people living in these countries. The frustrations haven't yet boiled over. I mean, there has been some demonstrations here and there, but... You know, look, we've had one patient here and look how much panic it caused. Um, So I think the next question is going to be what happens when this is over? Because there will be a humanitarian emergency that will be born out of this one. And and I do think we need to start thinking about that and preparing for it. I'm going to stop talking. Um, You can ask me questions. As I said, I'm not an expert in Ebola. And if anyone wants to 
answer a question if they feel that they've got an answer maybe more socially related, uh, feel free, so it can be more of a discussion. And just my blog was mentioned, a lot of those cases that I've talked about, or if you want more uh, information on what it was like to be working during the time, um, then, then if you just Google MSF and Benjamin Black, you get the blog will come up straight away. Thank you. when I say that was an absolutely superb and very humbling presentation. Thank you. Now, time is not on our side. Uh, we do have roving mics, so what I'm going to suggest is two or three questions. Keep your questions snappy, please, because I can see lots of hands wanting to go up. So is that okay, Benjamin? Yes. Yeah, we take two or three? Okay. Uh, these two hands are up here first. Uh, gentleman in the black top, gentleman in the pink stripy shirt, uh, Blue colleague. <laughs> Go quickly. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm from Uganda. And uh, I just want to find out, uh, Ebola broke out earlier on in other parts of Africa, for example, Congo and even Uganda. Have you shared some experiences with uh, the medical practitioners in Uganda and how they managed to contain the Ebola situation? I know it's very tough, but are, are there... Are there variations in both, both situations that has made Ebola go to this magnitude this time that probably was, was underlooked? Yeah. Right, thank you. Can you pass to the pink shirt? Sure. Like Do you want me to answer? We'll take both questions. Should we bundle a couple of questions? Okay, sure, together, sure. That's all right. Thank yeah, th thanks for coming. What's the protocol if uh, an international or national MSF staff gets infected? And finally... You mean if I get infected? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a million. That was great. Um, just a just a really uh, logistical question. Not logistical, but a clinical question. You see, um, it stays in the semen for three months. What about the amniotic fluid? If the mother recovers, basically, is there any way of clearing out the blood and the amniotic fluid so that basically that can be cleared out without delivery? If she's a six months in. Thank you. So I'm going to go in backwards order just because it's easier. So uh, in answer to your question. Evidence is not on our side. Um, as far as the, what we know so far is, every pregnant woman that we've had, the amniotic fluid has been positive, that we've tested. And then we, we've assumed that that's the case for the rest of them, because you can't assume otherwise. Um, as far as clearing it out, we haven't, we haven't tried, but there'd be very little benefit in, in waiting to see, because if you can deliver that woman, better to just deliver her, get it out, especially you know the baby's almost certainly going to be a stillbirth or going to die. <laughs> And, and help her to recover, regain her strength, rehabilitate her, get her home. Um, does that answer the question? Okay. Cool. Okay. Stuff infected. Well, I'm going back next week, so that's often on my mind. Um, the, uh, the protocol is that uh, MSF will try its best to get you um, repatriated to a country where you can receive treatment, but there is no guarantee. So if, uh, let's say it's me, if I start to get a fever, I would isolate myself. I would tell my <coughs> colleagues straight away so they know not to come near me because the first thing you want to do is protect those around you. Get tested. If I'm positive, then I would hope very much that the RAF will come and fly me somewhere like the Royal Free, but I can't be sure that will happen. And if you look at what's going on in the media at the moment uh, or if you look at what the government's up to, it sounds increasingly unlikely that that's what they want to do uh, because they're building a treatment centre in Sierra Leone specifically for international healthcare workers. So, 
it's an open end, let's see. Um, as far as national stuff, they, they, we try to treat them as well. So they'll be treated, um, and it, it's basically on a case-by-case basis. Uganda. Um, so we worked with, we had colleagues from Uganda who were, so MSF has been involved in nearly all of the Ebola outbreaks so far. And so MSF has worked in Uganda and has uh, very close links with the Ugandan government and with uh, national Ugandan staff that have experience in Ebola. And so in Kailahun, there were several Ugandan uh, nurses and healthcare workers who had come across especially to help us with their experience and with their training. So yes, is the short answer to your question. As far as why is it different, in Uganda and the Congo, um, usually the Ebola outbreaks that they had were in quite remote areas often out in the uh, forest, so in smaller communities. And it was in an area where you'd had Ebola before, so it was picked up more quickly. This outbreak, the reason it's become so huge is multifactorial. I don't probably have enough time to tell you all those factors, but part of it is there hasn't been Ebola in these countries before, so it wasn't recognised for, for quite a while. Probably the first case was back in December, but it was a few months before the WHO really said, this is an Ebola outbreak. So the disease had plenty of time to spread, and it spread within urban areas, which has never happened before. And urbanisation spreads diseases quickly. As we've said, there was poor health infrastructure, (coughs) poor levels of hygiene. Um, It crossed international borders, also never, ever happened before. So so what you've ended up with is an Ebola epidemic, which is in completely uncharted territory, a slow, slow recognition, slow response. I mean, the response... Today, still, months down the line, months of everyone shouting and screaming, we need a response, it still isn't there. So, that's why. Thank you, Dr. Benjamin. Um, just two questions. So you say a huge, a huge humanitarian emergency lacks about if not so much is done. What would you suggest, at least three or four things that you suggest that local and international communities should, must do as soon as possible for us to get better results so we don't have to get, you know, to see that it, it becomes endemic? And uh, secondly, advised, well, what advice would you give to somebody who is going to Sierra Leone in the next, well, in the next one week to, you know, take up the efforts in the emergency response. Thank you. Thank you. And final question in the back, please. Just curious as to the role of the expat nurses in the epidemic so far. Okay. Great. Thank you. Sorry, Benjamin. No, sorry. <coughs> so the, the role of expat nurses, um, I'm not sure I, I fully understand the question. I mean, essentially... An expat nurse, so say a nurse in MSF who's come from the UK, their role would be very similar to mine. Um, the medical management of Ebola in a treatment centre is not complicated. It's supportive treatment. I didn't say that, but you know, at the moment we don't have a cure. We have a few experimental treatments which aren't available. We have a vaccination, we're still in trials. So what we have to offer is supportive treatment. That means, can you recognise if someone's sick? Can you recognise if they need IV fluids or oil rehydration? Can you give them nutrition? Can you give them basic hygiene? Um, and so... My role as a doctor and the role of a nurse is very similar. It's not, there is no clear boundary. And if I go in and I see a patient 
who is, you know, lying there covered in diarrhea and vomit, and I'm the one who's in PPE, just because I'm the doctor, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to go and start cleaning them up and offering them some, uh, you know, good hygiene, palliation, symptomatic control. It's very blurred. And a nurse who goes in, you know, if they're competent and they can see that someone is really in pain, they don't need to wait for a doctor to come and tell them to give some analgesia. So, so it's a very... Um, Loose. Uh, it, it's not like it's not like here, for example. Um, and so, I, I didn't hear all the beginning of, of your question. Sorry, but the humanitarian emergency. You're asking me what what do I think could be done now or should be done now? So, first of all, this is my answer, not MSF's answer. Um, certainly, I could tell you all about what should have been done. That's easy. Everyone knows what should have been done. What should have been done months ago is that there should have been a big response. Uh, now we have a problem because the epidemic is huge. Uh, it's out of control. And, um, and I think anybody would struggle to tell you this is what needs to be done now. Or not what needs to be done, but this is what's going to solve the problem. Because the problem is that it's such a big magnitude that we've never ever seen before in so many different ways. It's, a, it's very complicated now. Um, what I think needs to be done, first of all, is that there needs to be a well-coordinated, and this is something which is really missing and has been for a while, and there's a big vacuum, is coordination. There needs to be a well-coordinated response with clear leadership where there is some organisational body which says, this is what we need here, this is what we need here, this is what we need here. Because if you end up with all these organisations and all these (coughs) actors coming in together and they're not coordinated, you're going to end up with duplication of projects. You're going to end up with some people doing things one way, some people doing things the other way. You'll end up with different levels of competence. The risk, as I said, of more international um, and national staff getting infected, which has its own consequences. And so I think that there is a risk that if we get it wrong, it can go catastrophically wrong. I mean, it's already a catastrophe. So, um, so yeah, so in short, good coordination, good leadership and a good, strong response which involves having people on the ground. At the moment, what you're seeing is a lot of countries saying they're going to give money, not necessarily come through yet, saying they're going to build treatment centres, not coming through quick enough. But you're not hearing that much about we're going to then provide well-qualified staff, people who have been trained properly, to then work in these centres. And, and actually what you need is people on the ground to really get, as I said, the education campaigns, the health promotions, but also the isolation facilities. Thank you so much, Benjamin. Uh, I think that was an absolutely superb seminar. I'm very aware of quite how tight timing is um, at the MSC, but thank you so much for that presentation. And I would urge people to take a look at uh, Benjamin's blog. It's, it's very moving, it's very informative, and gives you an incredible insight into, into what life is like uh, working in the front line. Thank you. Thank you.